0: Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy this story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips, and please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to hearing about the fascinating and varied career of Zaina Jalil today. Zaina's career has spanned the public, private, and NGO sectors, and she's worked in governance and strategy, marketing and business development, and communications and stakeholder engagement. She's lived and worked in New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, and India, including a period as the New Zealand Trade Commissioner to Singapore. As a Kiwi-Fiji Indian woman, Zaina identifies as much with Asia as she does with the Pacific, and has won many international awards for her work promoting New Zealand trade, investment, and education to Asia. More recently, she's a consulting partner at Senate SHJ, an independent consultancy, as well as holding a number of board director roles, and is also a keynote speaker, facilitator and commentator on a diverse range of topics. She also co-founded MyYoda, a mobile app that's like an Airbnb for yoga and meditation, connecting students and teachers around the globe via personalised live one-to-one video sessions. Zaina has been a finalist in the global category of the New Zealand Women of Influence Awards, and she loves problem-solving, and connecting people with their purpose. And I can't wait to hear her reflections on her career today. Kia ora Zaina and thank you very much for joining me. Kiora Anna, thank you for having me. Lovely. Well, the first question, I know when we spoke briefly beforehand, you said you'd listen to some of the other podcasts. So you probably know what the first question is going to be. But I wanted to ask, when you were a child or maybe a teenager, what were your career aspirations?
1: When I was a child, I was going to be a lawyer. I grew up in Fiji, so we didn't actually have awareness of the whole range of different careers. You know, every day new careers come up. But as a child, even now I can argue a case from both sides. I was good at debates. I was a, a national champion orator in my school days. And, and to an extent, it was, you know, what my parents and, and wider extended family always said I'd be. So it's it stuck for a while.
0: And you said it stuck for a while and then what happened?
1: When I was 16, I won an essay competition organised by the United Nations in Fiji and part of the prize was that I got to represent the youth of the South Pacific at uh, a UN forum uh, called the Hague Forum in the Netherlands. And this event and the goals that it came up with was in many ways the precursor to the sustainable development goals we have now. So it was a fascinating event. You know, I met the then first lady, Hillary Clinton. I uh, saw multilateralism in action and learned the power of words. I distinctively remember one night when the youth forum members, so there were three, four are going at the same time. A youth forum an NGO forum and a forum for ministers of of health from around the world. And as youth forum members, we were up till three in the morning developing our white paper to take to health ministers from around the world the next day as part of our advocacy for youth health rights. And it took that long because often the representatives from different countries couldn't agree on some of the wording used. So it took a while negotiating that. And after that event, you know, when I went back to Fiji, I continued to work with the UNFPA in Fiji on a whole range of advocacy related work around youth rights and responsibilities. I was um, the only youth speaker at Fiji's first youth summit, which formed the basis of the national youth policy. So I enjoyed that ability to have wider influence uh, and impact. And that's something that
0: has has stayed with me throughout my career. Wonderful. And what an amazing experience to have as a 16-year-old, to get that exposure. And you can see how that kind of that international nature has stuck with you through your career. So tell me then about the kind of the, the first few years of your then working life. What were some of the highlights and challenges of that? So my first
1: role was as a communications advisor at AUT University. I studied the communications degree at AUT and as a migrant I was very aware even though I was only a student at the time I, you know had only been in New Zealand a few years but I was very aware that it was hard to secure work if you didn't have New Zealand experience and everyone said you needed to have New Zealand experience but no one really wanted to be the first ones to give it to you so in my final year of study I worked part time at AUT in their communications team and when I graduated they gave me a full time job and the role was actually at an intermediate level so I skipped the the whole junior executive experience, if you like. And from AUT, I was headhunted by Baldwin Boyle Group, a PR agency. In fact, um, Baldwin Boyle had approached me earlier. I had graduated as the top student from the communications program and Baldwin Boyle's managing director at the time had been at the awards function and and offered me a job then. But I had already committed to AUT and I also felt that, you know, I needed to stay with them and and honour the relationship and the fact that they had supported me when I needed them. And those values around the importance of relationships have stayed with me throughout my career. So I worked at AUT for a while and then moved to Baldwin Boyle with the blessing of my my AUT manager. And I guess the lessons and and challenges of those early years, the lessons really, you know, ask questions, listen, learn, find a senior who can, you know, act as a peer reviewer or a sounding board for your work. Don't underestimate the power of connections. So my manager at AUT, the person who gave me my first job, is someone I've known for 20 years and we still remain connected and have done through the years, no matter, you know, where our lives have taken us, which part of the world or different career parts. And in fact, over the last couple of years, we have worked together on a number of projects, including with a client who used to be a colleague during our AUT days together for all of us. It sort of goes to show you the, the nature of, of how small the world is, but also how small New Zealand is. And The people that you meet early
0: on in your career can actually play quite a powerful role um, down the track. That's a great lesson. And you're right, how small the world is, but certainly how small New Zealand is in terms of, you know, usually people are connected. And I think if you can build a reputation and keep those networks going, then actually, as you said, you never know where they might pop up again in the future. And you started your career then in communications and then into PR. What was the appeal of that? What did you really love about that work?
1: I think that's a really interesting question. I think if you look at our world today and if you look at COVID, if you look at politics, if you look at the business sector, I mean, communications has often been something that's kind of Some people look at PR in particular, look, here come the spin doctors. But if you look at the countries that have done well through COVID, those are countries with leaders who have had really amazing ability to communicate, New Zealand included. Our businesses that have done well, often businesses who have leaders who are great communicators. So I think that the power of communications to be able to inspire, to be able to energise, to be able to move people into action in a particular way is often overlooked. And that's something that even, you know, as a young person, I could see the, the value of that work. At the end of the day, communications is really about relationships. So being able to to influence that, being able to work with, you know, clients or, or the organization that you're working for and help them to shape their messaging and help them to shape their story so that it aligns in the best possible way with their stakeholders, and not just for the sake of, as is often thought of, as you know, okay, so the PR people will help us say the right things. No comms person can help you say the right things if your organization's actually not doing the right things. And I think that's where the role of communications as corporate conscience uh, or organisational conscience is, is so important. It's a
0: really nice take on it. And I like the fact that you reference actually those scenarios when communication becomes so important, like recently here in New Zealand, and in terms of the COVID and the lockdown and getting people to do what was best for the country. And you contrast New Zealand's to response to other places around the world. And it's stark, isn't it? The power of communication and the impact it can have.
1: Yes, indeed. You just look at the United States and the the mixed messages that that people in that country are receiving. Um, And then you contrast that with what we had during our lockdown.
0: Mm. I'm interested in how did you end up in the Trade Commissioner role to Singapore? It seems an interesting shift in your career.
1: Yeah, so from Baldwin Boyle, I did my time there. And then I moved to New Zealand Trade and Enterprise in Auckland in a communications role looking after the food and beverage and education sectors or communications for the food and beverage and, and education sectors globally and in North Asia as my region. And it was a brilliant time to be in that role because our government at the time, so Helen Clark's government, was investing so much in the region. So North Asia is New Zealand's largest trading region. And the time that I joined NZT, the government committed 24 million new investment to expend our presence in North Asia, particularly in China. Uh, We were heading into signing the New Zealand-China Free Trade Agreement. They committed another, I think, 18 or 19 million or something into food and beverage promotions in the region. So it was a a really, really exciting time to, to be working in that space. And then an opportunity came up to head up marketing and communications for the North Asia region for New Zealand trade and enterprise based in Hong Kong. And the brief for the role was really to build our trade and investment profile in the region, but also to help demystify the region for New Zealand businesses because even in those days, people were exporting to Japan, but most New Zealand companies thought of Australia, UK, US as their primary markets, and they weren't really thinking about North Asia. So there was those two elements to the job. I absolutely fell in love with North Asia and desperately wanted to, to do that Hong Kong role, but by the time it came up, I found out I was uh, pregnant with my first child. And the initial reaction was, how am I going to do this now? Then I thought, you know what, why can't I do it? I'm just about to have a baby. It's not the end of the world. So I was about five months pregnant, moved to Hong Kong, (laughs) didn't know anyone there. And at that point had only spent about a week in Hong Kong and a week in China. That was the sum total of my lived experience in that region. But I had the time of my life building a team, developing a marketing and communication strategy for New Zealand in that region, did some really amazing work in many ways, you know, moments in history. So for example, working on large scale food and beverage projects in China and Japan and a massive innovation showcase promoting New Zealand in Korea, which won several awards. So I did that and we were heading into Shanghai Expo in in 2010. And I'd written our, our communication strategy for that. And, um, you know, I got our PR partners on board and everything. But then I was pregnant again, second child. And I knew that if I continued with that role, I'd be traveling pretty much to China fortnightly, if not weekly. And I'd missed a few of the, the special milestones with my first child and the first walk in the first woods. I was on a plane somewhere. And I thought if I only have two kids and, you know, I'm going to miss it this time around too. So I... Absolutely loved my job, loved being, helping to build New Zealand's trade profile around the region, but didn't want to be in a role that involved so much travel. But I wasn't ready to come back to New Zealand. So we had three vacancies at the time for trade commissioner roles and I applied and I got the Singapore trade commissioner job. Um, The interview for that job was two days before I went on maternity leave. I think the interviewers were very worried in case, you know, I went into labor during the interview. But we had the interview. Yeah, a week or so later, they called me up and they said, you know, we'd like to send you to Singapore if you're interested in going to Singapore. I said, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I'd come back to New Zealand to have the baby. I'd come back from Hong Kong to have the baby here. And so, yeah, I had my baby, moved back to Hong Kong, packed my bags and, and moved to Singapore. And did that for about three and a half years. Again, an incredibly amazing time to help New Zealand companies grow in Singapore and to an extent uh, for some in some sectors across wider Southeast Asia as well. And I'd been there for about just under three and a half years. There's a pattern here. And no, I wasn't pregnant again. I was asked uh, if I'd consider taking up the role of Regional Director South Asia for Education New Zealand based out of New Delhi. And I thought to myself, you know, if I can, I've done North Asia. I've, done Southeast Asia. If I can do India uh, and South Asia uh, more broadly, then I'd have pretty much done all of Asia. And how many people at my age can say that? I wasn't quite 30 at the time. So yeah, we packed our bags and we moved to India. The role was based in India. India was New Zealand's second largest student market, still is, but it at that time had been a market in decline. So my brief was to stem the decline We also, before I took on that role, the Prime Minister at the time, John Key, had announced an NZ Inc India strategy, which had set a target of 20% year-on-year growth from a declining market. So that was the brief, stem the decline, grow the market, achieve these targets. And my team and I didn't just stem the decline, we secured 3% growth in the first six months and 83% in the first year. So for our, our Sims For successes, at the end of that first year, Education New Zealand decided to merge the roles of regional director South Asia and Southeast Asia into the one role. So previously, there were two separate jobs. So overnight, my job basically doubled, my region doubled. And then we also inherited a declining market or declining markets in Southeast Asia. So then we, we grew those. So I did that and about three years there, four years ago, moved back to New Zealand When we first went to Hong Kong, we thought we were going to go for two years because anything less, you know, it's sort of too expensive to try and do a shift of that nature. And we thought you wouldn't actually learn all that much. Uh, So two years became 10 and then we moved back um, four years ago and I left government at that point. I felt like I'd had the best jobs in, in government and particularly, you know, in markets that I Felt really passionate about, and I see great potential for New Zealand in those markets. So I left government, joined a private sector. So I joined Senate SAJ, you know, which is a public affairs consulting firm. as a partner based in Auckland, and I did that for two years, helped a number of clients across a whole range of things, but often in crisis situations, so helping people get out of trouble. And I was missing Asia and the whole sort of international side of things a lot. So two years ago, I stepped back from being a full-time partner at Senate to being a consulting partner. So I I continue to work with the firm, but I now have the flexibility of having my own clients as well and doing a whole range of other things that I feel quite passionate about as well.
0: There are a couple of things in there that you talked about around your journey that I'd love to come back to. One is you obviously lived and worked in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in India as well. What did living and working overseas, what did you feel that brought to your career?
1: I haven't actually thought about it in that way, I suppose, because as a migrant here, I had lived in another country even before I moved to New Zealand. But I think broadly, being able to live and work in different countries, you know, it just gives you an insight into other cultures, into other worlds that you don't get if you just stay in the one place. Travel is great for getting a sense of a place, but living somewhere is quite a different experience. You get a depth of understanding That's quite different from if you were just going somewhere for a holiday. And also the the relationships that you form, you know, whether that's with colleagues or other friends that you make or people that you meet through the course of your work or just, you know, your life in that particular country and learning from them and observing them and their lives it just yeah it just gives you a, a window into a whole you know new world a different perspective which i think is so important today especially because it helps build greater tolerance and understanding for different cultures which can only be a good thing
0: Absolutely, it can definitely only be a good thing. And the other thing, thank you for speaking very openly about some of the kind of thought processes you got pregnant and were thinking about roles and had young children and how do you sort of manage that. And I think it it is on the minds of many women about whether perhaps early stages in their career, thinking about, is there a right time to have kids? And how do I do that? Do I lean in, lean out? Or as they go through their career, like, how do I juggle this and and have a fulfilling family life in a a career? As you look back now, have you got any reflections, particularly about that time as you were coming through and, and thinking about having children or juggling those early years of having kids with your work? I
1: think for me, the thing that's really stands out for me throughout my, my career and my life is that nothing was really planned as such. There was no grand plan around, you know, I'll have this job by this particular, you know, stage in my life, or I'll have this many children by this particular stage. As opportunities came, I, I seized them. And as, you know, things happened in my personal life. So I just made it all work as best as I could for me. And it was always about looking at, is this something that you really want? Is this something that you really want to do? And if so, then what's needed to make it happen? So go make it happen, you know? And sometimes you can't make it all happen yourself. You, you have to rely on support from others, whether that's family members, whether that's colleagues. I mean, one of the things for me, and I'm quite open about this, and it's quite a privilege that having children in Asia meant that I could afford to have a nanny. And I had a full-time live-in nanny for almost 10 years. So that was an absolute godsend in the sense of being able to have someone at home who could provide that support because my children's father has a career of his own and he worked long hours. He had uh, really senior positions. So when you have two people in a relationship, that may not be the answer for everyone and that's fine. We all have our own ways of making things happen. But I think for me, the key thing would be, That you need to know what it is that you want. And then you look at what's in front of you and you try and see how you can make it work. As I said, when, you know, the Hong Kong role came up, for example, I was pregnant with my first child and my colleagues said to me, Are you serious? You still want to go to Hong Kong? They thought I was having preggy brain. And I'm like, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. I have wanted to do this and I am going to make it work for me.
0: And and we did. Really interesting to hear, and I'm going to try and paraphrase, I won't say it the way you did unfortunately, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it was something on the, you know, we just figured out how we could make it work best for me. I just, Like that, it's not necessarily a planned approach, but figuring out what is important to you and trying to make sure you put that first. Really interesting, Zaina. Thank you for sharing that.
1: I could just add to that. I think at different stages in your life, different things are important to you. I was saying to you two years ago, you know, I stepped back from a full time role, and for the last two years, I've had what can probably best be described as a portfolio career. So I, you know, work with a bunch of clients in the areas that you've talked about. You know, I have a few board roles. I've launched this yoga and meditation app. And I just love the ability to, you know, leverage the full range of my skills and experiences across a whole range of different sectors and make a difference in so many different ways. But what I actually really love about what I do now is the flexibility to be able to to manage my work and life in a way that suits me and my family and the freedom to pick and choose work that inspires and interests me and where I feel like can add value. So as an example, you know, I'm able to drop my kids to school and pick them from school. And I have sort of my work fits around that. And at this stage in my life and in my children's life, that's important. So that's what we do. And yeah, so I think you decide what you want to do at a particular stage in your life, in your career, and then you try and see how you can make it happen.
0: And recognizing that it's not gonna be the same five years ago as it might be in five years' time. and doing what you need to for, for now. And Zani, you mentioned there the my Yoda app, which obviously is a almost a different step in terms of being an entrepreneur yourself. So what prompted that shift?
1: It's interesting actually. This is connected to my time in India. So in my last year in India, a friend introduced me to yoga. And I didn't really think it was the thing for me, I had never done it, I had completely sort of a misconception about what yoga was and what it wasn't but anyway she introduced me to her yoga teacher I tried it and it it was great I enjoyed it my teacher would come to me you know at my home at a time that suited me a private one-on-one lesson I only had to pay for the classes that I took was very affordable it was with a, a proper yogi who had learned with the masters and it just it worked with my work and my life schedule So when I came back to New Zealand four years ago, I tried to find something similar and I really struggled to find private, like one-to-one personalized yoga class where a teacher would tailor the class to suit my needs. In my time, at my place, what you got was you'd have to go to the teacher at a time that suited the teacher and classes, one-on-one classes are not cheap. And so I looked around, couldn't find anything Spoke with a few of my friends and a couple of them were in a similar position. So what they were doing was watching videos, pre-recorded videos online. There's a gazillion yoga and meditation apps out there with videos that you can watch and follow. But the problem with that was, again, they didn't know whether they were actually following correctly or not because no one's telling you whether what you're doing is right or not. And we were all in the same situation, you know, young children, working mothers, trying to find the time to actually something for ourselves and our own health and well-being. And that's where how the idea really came because for the you know last three years I was doing online one-to-one video classes with my teacher in India. And when I told people about it, they were like, wow, we'd love to do that. This is pre-COVID by the way. And yeah, and that's how it started. My friends came on board and then we added meditation as well because of the need for it. And then COVID happened and a lot of yoga studios, everyone had to close down. Everyone just moved online and had to. But the challenge was that, you know, you'd go and sort of book a class in one place and you'd get a Zoom link somewhere else. You'd make a payment in a third place. And what Myoda My does is that everything is built within the app itself. So you can go and browse teachers from, you know, any corner of the world. So we've got teachers from all around the world. And you can choose the teacher by the type of yoga and or meditation they're teaching, by their ratings, by their availability, by their price, the language they speak. There's a whole range of, of filters that you can use. So you book the class and then the class takes place within the app. And you know that the class is tailored to your needs because it's one-on-one. It's you and the teacher. The teacher engages with you before the class to find out what are the areas you want to focus on. Or if you have injury or a recurring health issue, you can advise your teacher beforehand. And the class is one that's, that's for you And that'll work for you. And you've got a teacher guiding you through the whole process. So you can do classes for 30 minutes or or an hour. So that's kind of how it started. But the other thing for me in that, and this is going back to the things that I'm passionate about around making a difference, was also when I looked at my teacher in India, he probably would never be able to afford to come and visit New Zealand. But by teaching me, he gets a window into New Zealand. And at the moment, we are very fortunate in New Zealand to be out of lockdown, but there are many places around the world that are still in lockdown. So for New Zealand teachers, for example, being able to connect with students from around the world, being able to, you know, supplement their income. So they might be teaching in studios for a few hours during the day and they've got some breaks in their schedule when they can jump onto Myoda and teach a student either in New Zealand or from anywhere else in the world. And it's building those international connections so that you know, at a time when we can't travel, we can still be connected, and actually be doing something good for our own health and well-being at the same time. And
0: I think, like many business ideas, it came from a personal experience that you had or a problem that you thought needed solving. And once you realise, actually, there's quite a few people have the same problem that you think, oh, there's a there's a business idea. But I also really like the fact that you're bringing in some of those insights over your career about the international connections then into the app as well. As you look back, Zaina, so, you know, I can't imagine it was all easy and roses along the way. What would you say were some of the toughest career challenges or moments that you've had in your career? Well, there
1: have been a few. Every challenge is an opportunity to learn and grow, really. And, you know, if I think about me taking up the the role in Hong Kong, yeah. I didn't speak the language. I had only spent, as I said, a week in Hong Kong and China. I'd never been to Japan, Korea or Taiwan. And these were all markets I was supposed to be looking after. So, you know, so you surround yourself with people that do know, whether that's in your own team or wider stakeholders, you learn. But you also accept that, you know, you won't always have all the answers. You can't know it all. And that's also OK. And so you ask for help and guidance. When I went to Singapore, the challenges at the start were quite different. I was a very young trade commissioner. I was still in my 20s. I was one of the few women, um, the only Indian. Most trade commissioners in those days were white men in their 40s. And I remember in one of my first meetings with the expat Kiwi community, which was you know, very blokey in those days, I was told that business here is done at the pub over beer. And I don't drink, but I can do business at the pub if that's what's required. But the underlying message really was that I'd be intruding on a male bonding session. My predecessor was a guy. At my first networking session, another expert Kiwi male said to my manager, at least your new trade commission address is better than the last one. And I thought to myself, is that all you can see? Anyhow, three and a half years later, delivering deals 30% above target and, and growing Singapore to be one of our top five customer markets, At my farewell, those same people were my biggest champions and we continue to have great relationships years later. So I think it's when people don't really know you and just see you at face value, there's almost the onus is on you to show them how you can actually be able to contribute and add value and support them. But I also think that over time, hopefully we can have more open-mindedness within our work environments so that people aren't judged on face value India was a different sort of challenge, more from a family perspective. My children pretty much grew up in Singapore. And so when you've lived in Singapore, moving to India is not for the faint hearted. The challenges in the start were just around settling the family. And as I said, when my role was doubled, I was essentially living on planes um, and juggling that with a young family that you know often leaves you with a lot of guilt. So managing
0: that just from a personal perspective. If I may ask, how did you deal with the guilt? Because I think it is something that a lot of working parents struggle with. How did you deal with it? I think for me, it was
1: about making sure that the time that I did spend with my children was quality time, that the time I wasn't there, that they were very well looked after and cared for by someone who loved them dearly, like their own, and that I did take you know, good breaks throughout the year when I would just completely switch off from work. You know, I'd take a month off and we'd go away and just have that family time. And the funny thing is that, you know, while I remember all of these things and to some extent still carry some of that guilt, my children have no recollection of it. So they were quite little at the time. So they don't remember that, you know, mummy was traveling so much. Now they are at an age when they do remember if I'm not around. So it's great that I can be around for them now. And, you know, I think you just have to be kinder to yourself because you can't be doing all things at the same time. And, you know, I know one of the themes for your conversations has been around how do you balance career and your broader life? And I don't try to. I've always accepted that there will be times when work needs me more and and other times when family or my other personal commitments need to be prioritized. I love my work, always have, and it's integrated into my life. And that's been... There for me from the time I was a child, I'd remember sitting at the back of so many meetings that my mum was at with all the different hats she wore. And now on occasion, my children join me in some of my work commitments. I think it's also about having a good understanding of your own work habits and limitations. I thrive in high pressure situations. I've done a lot of crisis work and the adrenaline gets you through. But I also know that there are times that I just need a break and, you know, I'll take a day off or, or several just to recharge. And yoga has helped with that as well.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And some super advice actually in there. But also, as you said, it's personal and out what works for you within all of that. You talked then about some of the challenges that you faced in your career. What about if you look back, what are some of your proudest career moments? They are more
1: than the challenges. And I see them very much as, you know, successes of the the amazing teams that I've had the good fortune to lead as much as mine. So first up, really, the proudest moments would be all the fabulous people that I've been able to lead and grow. And and there are many some of the other highlights would be working on the communications and media for the New Zealand-China Free Trade Agreement, you know, watching that signing in the Great Hall of the People and seeing all the media coverage, all the international media coverage that i played a part in securing as a 20-something year old. That's pretty special, you know, the moment in history, and I will never forget that. Winning several awards for our work promoting New Zealand trade and education in Asia. You know you're onto something when the equivalent Australian agency starts copying your strategies. So that's always a great compliment. In my role with Education New Zealand, I came to New Zealand as an international student and I feel very strongly about the role that it played in my future. So thinking about how we grew the South and Southeast Asia markets, it's, that's an absolute highlight, thinking of the many lives that will change as a result of a New Zealand education. More recently, I've got two of my clients to work together to create opportunities for Māori and Pacific tertiary students to secure work experiences in Asia, you know, something that they probably would never have done. So those things, you know, I, I take um, I take a lot of pleasure out of them.
0: And you can see along that well, all those kind of connections between people along the way. I love also the story when the Australians start copying us, you know, we're on to a good thing. It's uh, nice, very nice to share. And you've achieved a lot at a Fairly early age in your career, Zaina. So, there are many, many years probably of career in front of you. Where do you see your career heading in the future? I see
1: myself, you know, continuing to make a difference, particularly in those fields of, you know, education and, and economic development with a diversity and inclusion lens. Equity and justice is, is something that's important to me. So, that's work that I will continue to do. What shape or form that takes, I'm not sure. My entrepreneurial journey is fairly new. So that's something that I'll continue with. So yeah, as I said, there was never a a sort of a goal or a timeline before and there isn't one now. It's more about the type of work I want to do, the type of impact I want to be making.
0: Yeah, I love that phrase there. It's, with everything in my life, I don't do it by halves. And I get definitely get that sense from talking to you that you're not one to kind of shy away from a challenge that actually you'd like to get stuck in and, and try and fix it. If I might ask a last question, you've already shared some really fascinating advice, actually, in terms of other people's careers. But is there any other advice you wanted to share for other girls or women who might be listening?
1: I think it's really important to find that sweet spot where your strengths um, and passion intersect. You know, when you are doing something that you really care about and you're able to leverage your skills and experience, then you don't ever view work as something that just pays the bills. It becomes part of your, you know, your life's purpose and your mission. And that's just an amazing space to be in. And I have been very fortunate that... In seizing the opportunities I did, because this wasn't by design, but in seizing the opportunities that I did, I ended up on many occasions in those spaces where my strengths and what I felt passionate about aligned. And I was able to to bring that together. The other thing that I'd say is, you know, surround yourself with people who inspire you and who you can learn from but also people who you can give to
0: because one-way streets never go far. Wonderful advice. Thank you. Find the intersection, the sweet spot between your passion and strengths and then surround yourself that you can learn from, but people also who you can give to. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Zaina. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you today and hear about such a varied career. And thank you very, very much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Anna. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon. Thank you.